I can tell you one of the most stressful kinds of moments I would have being in the nonpartisan office as assistant chief clerk and parliamentary is being called into a committee hearing blind, no information, usually a frantic call from a committee secretary or, or chief consultant. Hey, things are blowing up in this committee. Come down and resolve it. And just walking in and you get 15 different stories of what happened and you don't have time to right. roll tape and review. You're a nonpartisan individual trying to call the balls and the strikes as right. you as you see them. And then when you go into the other role, there was just a lot more volume of things I have to deal with. So now I'm in charge of providing multiple documents to the full membership as well as Democratic members. Hello and welcome again to another episode of Sac Town Talks. Today we're glad to be joined by Brian Ebert, uh, speaker's uh, floor floor First, director. Floor yes. director. Hello, Brian. Thanks for coming in and, and tell us a little about yourself. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So, well, I've been a capital employee now for 31 years. So wow. I don't know where you want me to begin. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go back. Let's go back 31 years. What is that? 1991. 91. Okay. Yeah. Um, our, Just the end of Willie Brown coming in. Okay. Um, uh, Willie Brown had a few years yeah. left still. So um, yeah, actually I started uh, on April 1st, 1991. So we call ourselves the April Fool's Caucus. The right. few of us that started that day. Um, but uh, yeah, I came uh, directly out of UC Davis um, uh, through a paid internship program through the chief clerk's office. Mm -hmm. uh, what was interesting to me was I applied for that um, internship in November of 1990. And the big thing that happened in November 1990 was Proposition 140, which of course instituted the nation's most uh, strict term limits right. on California and uh, also cut the legislature's budget uh, almost 40% overnight. Wow. So I go into my interview with uh, then chief clerk Brian Kidney um, and a few other gentlemen that had been working there since the 1960s. Mm -hmm. And here I am, some 20-year-old kid from Davis, uh, um, sitting in this room, these uh, old guys, and it was the weirdest interview ever. They were right. just talking amongst each other, and I'm just sitting there nervous, probably sweating through my cheap suit. And um, and then I remember them asking me, so why'd you take Mandarin Chinese for your foreign language? Yeah, And I was like, oh, I'm interested in maybe becoming a diplomat one day or what have right. you, studied you know, far East Asian studies and what have you. And, um, and then they just kept talking, um, amongst themselves. And then, and then the chief clerk said, uh, you know what? I took Russian for, uh, my foreign language. So it's okay. You know, these communist yeah. countries, I'm like, okay, that's a weird, it was just a weird <laughs> interview tactic. And I left there thinking, okay, they didn't ask me anything about like politics, legislature, right. poli sci, none of that. And, uh, but then I got a letter saying, yeah, you've been selected. Um, but what was odd there was because they, as longtime assembly staffers at the time, they were all about to get pushed out essentially mm -hmm. because of that 40% budget cut, um, at the time, you know, from November, 1990 through the uh, first half of 1991 legislature laid off hundreds of employees and wow. also, uh, gave severance packages to many of them and golden parachutes and what have you. And, uh, and so by the time I actually started on April 1st, 1991, they were all gone. Right. There was no chief clerk. There was no assistant chief clerk. The, really? There was the, yeah. The, the clerk's office had been pretty much wiped out. Um, and member offices, committee staffs, um, got rid of entire departments in the assembly. Mm -hmm. So you had this big drain of institutional knowledge that had just been kind of, you know, taken out of the legislature. Where did a lot of those staff go? Into the lobbying corps, 
consultants um, into the executive branch. So you pretty much had a transfer of power from the legislature to these other entities. And then I'm pretty much there as uh, inexpensive labor coming right. for, fresh out of college. Um, and, you know, I grew up very poor. My childhood was, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, impoverished to say the least, you know, the first seven years of my life. And so the thought of working in this beautiful building and wearing a suit right. and being around all these important people was just like something that wasn't in, you know, in my realm of, of uh, possibilities. So I was just very honored and I am honored to this day every time I walk into that building um, that uh, just being in awe of the institution. So me starting there in 1991 was interesting because it was under the speakership of Willie Brown and all those titans of California politics were still there. You know, the Ross Johnsons, the the John Burton, right. um, um, Jerry Falando, Dick Floyd, um, you know, Willard that, Murray. I mean, right. it's just all these uh, folks. Learned a lot of new um, words. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, so being there in the days of, you know, floor sessions that it's, you know, there was no, there weren't, there were some computers back then. But if you wanted to find out what's going on during a floor session back then, you show up in the bill room, 7.30 a.m. when they open, get a copy of the file and try to figure out what's gonna happen. You kind of buckle up and just watch the right. members uh, go at it. And a lot of them knew parliamentary procedure um, and there were, uh, it was a much more closely divided house. So there was a lot more um, conflict on the assembly floor, I'd say, uh, verbal. Yeah, um, it, was like, yeah, it was like pretty maneuver. split, right? Yeah. Yeah, so, um, but what hooked me um, um, in addition to the grandeur of the whole right. the whole thing being surrounded by these icons was uh, I was placed as this paid intern in the engrossing and enrolling um, department of the assembly desk. And these are folks that are kind of uh, at the time were, you know, off in the basement of the Capitol and they work in teams and they still do to this day where uh, they read out loud to each other bills to proofread them every time they're amended. And then there's a process to take bills to the governor once they've been passed by both houses. So I was given that role of basically uh, bill delivery, you get signatures mm -hmm. and, and doing some of that kind of paperwork. And so uh, uh, 1991 budget cycle, state budget at that time was $48 billion. We had a $14 billion deficit in a $48 billion budget. And back then it's two thirds vote budget. Right. So that was the day of the big five. So you had Willie Brown and the Republican leader on the assembly side, David Roberti and the Senate leader, uh, Senate Republican leader on the Senate side, working with then Governor Pete Wilson. Those big five would come up with the deal and $14 billion deficit. That year they decided to do $7 billion in tax increases, which was at the time the biggest tax increase in U.S. history at the state level, and $7 billion in cuts to programs. So virtually... Everybody hated it, right. but it's it's what they had to do. Um, and at the time, uh, and you may recall this, uh, if you didn't have a budget passed and enacted, signed into law by uh, July 1st, legislative staff weren't getting paid, right. vendors, contractors, no one's getting paid. Yeah. yeah, there was IOUs, uh, applying for you know no interest loans for your, um, uh, for your own paycheck. Um, and also what Willie Brown did at the time um, as a pressure tactic, he would have floor sessions every day, seven days a week, even if we had nothing to do as a pressure tactic, because his uh, philosophy was, it is our constitutional duty, their primary duty to get that budget passed um, so the state can operate. And so you cancel your summer vacations, you right. know, cancel any time off, cancel your weekends, cancel your 4th of July, and you're gonna be here in session. But what happened that year, 
that deal was cut in June of 1991. And under California law, you have 12 days when that budget bill hits the governor's desk, 12 days to sign it, veto it, um, or let it go into law without your signature. Um, typically you would pass the budget and all the trailer bills at once. In this instance, I don't know if it was the excitement of we got the budget deal and they got the 54 votes on right. the, and two thirds vote over in the Senate. And uh, we brought the assembly bill down to the governor's office. Um, however, then all of the trailer bills stalled or a few of them did. And the governor couldn't sign the budget bill without the trailer bills still being in limbo because that would just blow up the whole budget bill. Right. Um, he couldn't veto it. The uh, budget had never been vetoed in California history until later when uh, more recent uh, Jerry Brown uh, uh, gubernatorial veto, maybe about seven or eight years ago. But um, so that was not seen as an option. Uh, plus to get that two thirds vote to have to redo it again was not uh, in the cards. And so um, Willie Brown, uh, master parliamentarian, uh, he figured out a way, okay, to get the governor an extra 12 days. So on uh, July 3rd, close to midnight, Actually, going back here, Willie Brown got his start in the 1960s in the mm -hmm. assembly. One of right. his first committee chairmanships was the Engrossing and Enrolling Committee, which no longer exists. Right. Now it's just the department of the, of the chief clerk's office. So he knew the ins and outs of engrossing and enrolling and how bills moved around the Capitol. And so um, he knew you could withdraw a bill from the governor's desk and, you know, with governor's permission and a motion of the House and then re-enroll it. Um, Usually that's done to amend the bill. Like, oh, there's a bill on the governor's desk. We need to get it back, fix something, right. and then we'll, we'll send it back to him with another vote. So what he did at um, 10 minutes to midnight on July 3rd, um, at midnight, by the way, that bill would either become law or you'd have to veto it. Or um, you would either sign it or it goes into law without a signature or right. you have to veto it. So Willie Brown was presiding. He loved, loved to preside. It was a late night session, obviously, almost midnight, and he just you know, was working the file and said, oh, members without objection will return Assembly Bill 222 uh, from the governor's desk. Order return to enrollment without objection. Okay, next bill, item 45, moved on. No one objected. <laughs> right. What they didn't know was uh, I was then deployed, go down to the governor's office, get that bill back, went down there, and uh, Speaker's Chief of Staff, Michael Galizio, uh, followed me to make sure I didn't uh, right. <laughs> depart with that bill, and suddenly California had a budget, uh, you know, that uh, was in place without uh, the governor's signature because we needed to get that back to the assembly chamber. And that was exciting for me as a twenty-year-old right. kid, you know, and that yeah, like forty-eight billion dollars. <laughs> yeah, and reporters had caught on to something. Something's going down here. Right. Was is that the governor's budget bill, or you know, and chasing me down the halls, and you know, I came into the chamber that budget and handed it to Speaker Brown and he held it up and said, members, I have the state budget here and I'm ordering it return to enrollment. And by this time, it was a little after midnight, gave the governor an extra um, 12 days so they would have that window to negotiate the uh, trailer bills. So me as a you know young intern being part of this, right. even though I was just like this ministerial part of this action, that was exciting. Mm. It's like, wow, and what's this parliamentary procedure and right. stuff? I, you know, I want to learn more about this. And that, I would say, launched my um, interest into the, the whole system and those nuances of, uh, of the legislative process. Yeah. And back then, you know, kind of with, with the tighter parties and the, uh, you know, the two thirds votes, you know, sessions would go really late at night. Right. Uh, really long time. The budget, I remember, you know, in the early 2000s, the budget wouldn't be passed till like, what, August? 
Yeah, they kept getting later and later. Yeah. Uh, We we thought it was bad going to mid-July or late July. Then it went into August. Eventually, the latest one was early October, I think, under um, Governor Schwarzenegger. And that's when the Constitution was changed. Right. I think everyone was kind of tired of the uh, of all the dragging antics it out. In the, yeah, in the fun. what you, like in the early '90s? Like it's like a different world compared to today, right? Like, could you smoke on the floor back then? Yes, um, and I remember some interesting stories there because with the early '90s is when there was that big push push to um, ban indoor uh, smoking. Yeah, yeah, um, public or smoking in public buildings. Um, and I remember when that bill was being debated on the floor. Um, Gerald Philando is Republican from Southern California, and he had um, he had gotten into a, a verbal altercation with Dick Floyd because Dick Floyd loved to smoke right. sometimes cigars on the assembly floor, right on the floor, right. Yeah. So Dick Floyd and uh, Curtis Tucker Jr. would sit in the back of the chamber at their yeah. desks and smoke cigars during session. And so, um, Mr. Philando asked uh, Dick Floyd to please stop smoking. Dick Floyd said, "You know." You know, none of your business. Right. You know, <laughs> Not and, that kind, probably. You know, and yeah. he said, hey, well, I, you know, and there were some words exchanged, and I just saw some blowing of some smoke into uh, Mr. Falando's face, which, uh, uh, yeah, that was uh, probably around 1991 or 92 as well. So I thought that, yeah, seeing those things that aren't on mic um, that are interesting are always uh, uh, fascinating, yeah. especially as a, as a young staffer. Yeah, it's just yeah. wild to me that like everyone, you know, you go into capital offices or the lobbyists in the hallway, just all be full of smoke. Oh, yeah. And it wasn't that long yeah. ago. So in addition to, yeah, the, uh, you know, 20 hour long sessions and it's it's hot and stuffy, right. you've got people that haven't showered in probably a couple of days yeah. out in the halls and and then you've got this the cigarette smoke on top of it. it was not pleasant to say right. the least. So, you know, in the, in the early 90s, you know, you're in this engrossing and rolling department kind of where did you start taking your next steps to kind of get where you are today? Yeah, so I did seven months of, of that, and then someone retired at the assembly desk and applied for her job. And so I became the assistant daily file clerk, um, and I worked on the daily file for a number of years. Uh, and that, of course, daily file is the- A monster. The, yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, it's um, uh, a lot of information in that document. So back um, then, how how was, how was the daily file made every day? It was the first publication to be automated. Um, so we had desktop publishing software right there on the assembly floor. So I came in that we had our own mm-hmm. personal servers and everything. So right. it was like just uh, the internet hadn't quite been like launched. No one had PCs really at yeah. their uh, workstations, but we had these uh, big, I remember these huge monitors that someone once dumped water into by accident. Uh, but uh, yeah, this uh, uh, desktop publishing software. And so we'd create the agenda for, for um, each day. And that would be all the committee agendas, all of the floor items, um, and uh, yeah, cover to cover, it'd be hundreds of pages a day, and yeah, it was uh, it was a it's definitely a a good way to learn the process, though. Yeah. Um, of all the publications, I mean, there's the journal, history, and file. Um, I've I've always been a big fan of the the daily file just right. because it's it's uh, people used to carry them around everywhere. You don't see as much of that anymore because everything's you know on your cell phone or tablet. But, right. But uh, all the information is, that you need to know who's on which committee which bill has been in print for 30 days, which, uh, you know, which bills are in second or third reading mm-hmm. or concurrence, all that's there. So, um, and then from there, um, I became the assistant chief clerk and parliamentarian, which I was very grateful to Dotson Wilson, longtime chief clerk. Um, he's been my mentor for many years. And um, cause there had never been an assistant chief clerk slash parliamentarian. It was always just assistant chief clerk. But, right. But he saw the wisdom of having someone with 
you know, a, a focus on the parliamentary procedure because he was the chief parliamentarian. So, okay, you're going to be my parliamentary go-to as backup. And um, so when he gave me that title and position, I, um, I took it very seriously. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to have that in my title, I'm going to go out and I'm going to get a credential as a registered parliamentarian. And I'm like, how do you do that? Yeah, I didn't know. Right? What is that? Explain <laughs> yeah. us what is a parliamentarian and kind of how do you become one? Yeah. Well, it's, you know, someone that's an expert on uh, the rules of meetings, mm -hmm. right? So in the United States, there's two big organizations, the National Association of Parliamentarians, that's the larger one. And then there's one, the American Institute of Parliamentarians. Um, I uh, joined both organizations and I took a uh, credentialing test. I just crammed for it, 1,200 parliamentary scenarios. Uh, that covered everything from legislative bodies yeah. to political conventions to um, boards and commissions and nonprofits and corporate charters. And I just crammed and I got my uh, registered parliamentarian credential. And um, I think having worked in the legislature for a number of years, yeah. I, you know, um, and having a focus on the legislative process really helped. And I went and got my master's degree and uh, focused. My thesis was partisan conflict on the assembly floor and how term limits played into that. So, um, so I just wanted to make sure if I'm going to be relied on for parliamentary and procedural information that I would be, you know, the person in the room that would have the answers or know how to get it very quickly. Right. Cause especially like what, what year, what year did you start doing this? The parliamentarian? Um, uh, 2008. 2008. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, and then I have to renew every six years. So uh, you take another test yeah. and you know, get practical experience. So, so earlier you were talking about how, you know, under Willie Brown and the big staff cuts, um, you know, Dotson, what came into his role, what, in the around that time or was it a little before? Yeah, so during my internship and the first several weeks of my full-time job in the uh, assembly, we had no chief clerk. We had an acting chief clerk. Mm -hmm. He was the he had been promoted up. Uh, he, he was the assistant chief clerk, essentially. And um, and as a result, the assembly actually hired um, a parliamentarian for about, uh, it was about 10 months or a year. It was Jack Knox, who was a former um, speaker pro tem of the assembly and, you know, law and lobbyist. Um, he was hired to be the assembly's parliamentarian while we had no chief clerk. And he sat there in front of the presiding officer now, Willie Brown was uh, and Jack O'Connell were the presiding officers mm -hmm. of the assembly at the time. They didn't meet, need much, you know, parliamentary help. But to have Jack Knox, who was an icon here in California as well, as a presiding officer, to have him sitting down there in the front during the tumultuous term limit, you know, um, um, you know, era of that, especially that first year, I think was kind of uh, help calm, you know, members' fears. Right. Because, like I said, the desk staff had been eliminated pretty much uh, a lot of those staff. And so they had like a brand new reading clerk. Um, his name was Norm. And he came in <laughs> off the street and no training. And, right. and I think Willie Brown even admitted to it at one point in a, in a press story that it was like he wanted to show what, you know, what you do to the legislative branch when you just wipe out all the institutional right. knowledge. Here, reading clerk, go. And so he's losing votes and just putting the wrong things up on the board. And, you know, he laughs about it now. But uh, it was very stressful for him at the time. Yeah. Oh, Norm's still around? Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, at some point he became a lobbyist, uh, yeah. and he's he's out there somewhere. So, all right, Norm, if you're listening to us, you, know, you have to come on, tell yeah. us about. 
He can still do the roll call from those days in the early nineties. Yeah, from memory. So like that, you're you're talking about how like you know now you have the speaker and then you have like a speaker pro tem who runs the floor session. Mm -hmm. You're saying back in the nineties, Willie would would run the floor session himself. Yeah, every speaker um, has their own style. Some Mm -hmm. uh, speakers like to preside. Some would rather have the speaker pro tem or assistant speaker pro tem preside. So um, yeah, Willie Brown. you know, he enjoyed presiding. And like I said, there were a lot longer floor sessions right. then. Um, and um, I'd say a lot more conflict on the floor. I mean, if you look at hostile motions and... Uh, Just hostility, right? <laughs> you know, there's been well, fights. And, and remember, part of my <laughs> master's thesis was to actually measure those, um, um, uh, those uh, that conflict on the right. floor. And I did it through several ways of hostile motions and um, even budget bill votes and what have you. And you see a huge spike in the um, in the mid '90s. So, um, and I, you know, drew the correlation to the passage of term limits. But it was also, you know, um, uh, the house was more evenly divided. And when you have a more evenly divided house, you have more of that conflict. Right. So, you know, with the uh, the majority vote budget now, the seventy-two hour print rule, um, with a supermajority. Um, I think there's less inclination to have those kinds of uh, blowups on the floor. Yeah, you'll have you know impassioned speeches, occasional procedural um, activities, but it's it's nothing like it was in the 1990s. Uh, right, and uh, that's why it's hard to teach it to well, even, folks. Yeah, even like the six-year term limits, right? Because like even there, you had like two members from the same party possibly going after the same Senate seat and just eyeing each other for for six years, right? Right, right. Yeah, it's. Um, you know, unless you're there and see the um, floor activities take place in front of you, it's just like, uh, um, I know Dotson used to use this as an example. It's one thing to read a book about baseball. You can't right. read a book about baseball and then go become an expert player, right? Uh, you have to actually play the game. And same with the rule book. You can read the rule book if you want, but I think it's going to be a waste of time. You actually have to get in there, you know. And I, you know, I do a lot of staff trainings and 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 new member trainings and orientations over the years. And um, I always just say, focus on this list of rules. These are the ones that we use all the time that you're going to see. Right. Um, and uh, even watch video clips. Here's here's some examples that you might want to uh, take a look at to see how um, things used to be done mm-hmm. in case they you know arise again. So have to be prepared. How how late does the archive go? Do you guys have video of? Uh, assembly s- started being uh, televised in the uh, I think it was nineteen ninety, so it was right okay. before I started. So you have all the video of all that. Yeah, they're <laughs> all available. Stuff yeah, in the back. Yeah. Okay, that's great. So then you know your assistant, uh, what chief clerk, and then kind of mm-hmm. where do you go from there? Yeah, so I did that for ten years. Um, so two thousand eight to two thousand eighteen. Um, yeah, well, two thousand eight through uh, till the first part of twenty seventeen. Yeah, so okay. yeah, so maybe that's more like nine years. Or, but um, the uh, during that time, uh, I did a lot of. Um, I would say what, what I like to encourage staff to do in, in, in the legislature is always identify what you think like your weaknesses are and work on those. Right. Mm-hmm. And for me, I was so focused on the floor all the time. I was like, okay, I need to focus on committees because that's real, really where all the work gets done. And so over the years, I really started focusing on committee hearings. I reviewed all the committee rules, helped rewrite virtually all of them because they were all kind of needing uh, updating because right. sometimes they're just kind of passed down from year to year. So working on those kinds of projects. 
And, um, and so I felt like I had, you know, um, expanded my knowledge of the entire process. And then, um, where our floor director had moved on in uh, late 2016, um, I was asked, Hey, you have any ideas who would be good at that job? And I thought about it for a couple of days. I, was like, I don't know. You know, it's kind of a niche job to be floor director, you know, for the speaker. Um, you have to know parliamentary procedure, kind of have to know about, you know, bills and, you know, some of the politics and policies, personalities and all that. And I was like, oh, you know what? Why not me? Yeah, yeah sure. I'll apply for it. And uh, Speaker Rendon hired me and uh, and it's been it's been great. Um, it, it's like going from a nonpartisan office after 25 years into um, what, um, even though it's, you know, obviously the speaker is a, you know, a partisan figure. He's mm. also the speaker of the whole house. Right. And I think that's how our unit kind of views our role is like we serve the house. Of course, we serve the speaker and and, and the majority party and, and give that, you know, strategic advice we called upon to do so. Um, but we also serve the entire membership because the assembly floor, you know, belongs to everybody. So like what specifically is different from what you do now in your role today mm -hmm. than it was kind of when you were just kind of, a, you know, a neutral? Uh, well, I can tell you one of the um, most um, stressful kinds of moments I would have being in the nonpartisan office as assistant chief clerk and parliamentarian is being called into a committee hearing blind, no information, usually a frantic call from a committee secretary or, or chief consultant. Hey, things are blowing up in this committee, you know, come down and resolve it right. and just walking in and you get 15 different stories of what happened. And, you know, you don't have time to like right. roll tape and review. You just have to, you know, I always uh, feel like when they call dots it in, you're like, Oh yeah. And you, and you walk <laughs> in and everyone's looking at you yeah. like you're going to like an like, NFL <laughs> game in the replay booth. Like. Yeah. And, um, you know, so, so you have that component, but you know, you're a nonpartisan, you know, uh, individual trying to, you know, call the, the balls and the strikes as right. you, as you see them. Uh, and then when you go into the other role, uh, there was just a lot more um, volume of, of things I have to deal with. So now, you know, you know, I'm in charge of providing multiple documents to the, the full membership as well as, you know, the Democratic members, which is for, for instance, for Democratic members, the Democratic floor alert, the, um, the uh, pre-session document, which goes actually to all offices in in the assembly, um, the chamber calendar, like all, all of the, anything chamber related. So guest visits, mm -hmm. tours, um, ceremonies, state of the state address, the organizational session, all those things are coordinated in my office. I mean, you used to work in the floor unit yeah. years ago. Uh, I don't know if you had to work on um, a ceremony, but you know, whether it's, printing the programs or dealing with all the guest requests, um, media security, whatever right. the, you know, uh, all those logistics, uh, plus the parliamentary, uh, components to it is, uh, uh, quite a big production. We're talking about hundreds of people coming together for an event and you don't want to mess it up because uh, right. it's very special to the members involved, of course. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Like, uh, what was that like the, the end of last session? Um, Deborah Gravert was retiring and they were like planning a ceremony for her. <laughs> 
but like there was also business to do at the same time. So yeah. like, everyone's kind of waiting there for the ceremony. People, but there's business to be done. Like all the members aren't there yet. Uh, so yeah, it's kind of it can be like herding cats at some point, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, and under COVID is very challenging, of course. Um, and that's another thing that uh, was uh, interesting to deal with because in March of 2020, um, as you, as everyone knows, it, everything just came to a halt suddenly. Right. And um, I never worked from home. Mm-hmm. It was like I was one of a small group of people in our house that went in every day, especially in those early days where it's like, let's figure this out. We had to figure out from scratch, how do you, how do you operate an entire branch of government that can't shut down, that can't work from home, you know, you need public input, you need debates, you need floor votes, you right. need analyses of bills and all of these things. And you've got to, you know, California is different than other states. We have different uh, constitutional requirements mm-hmm. in terms of legislate or public access to the legislature. And so we had to invent, you know, from scratch and being in those rooms, you know, I'm kind of honored that I was in that room, but um, it's all almost kind of like a blur now because we had to figure out all the legal issues. I mean, the, the, uh, even the concept of can you ask someone um, what their, you know, if they have a runny nose or can you oh, take yeah. someone's temperature? It's like, that was unheard of. I was like, who, who's, who's going to take the temperature? You know, some, you know, people are saying, oh, we have the national guard come in and right. do that or a nurse, sergeants, a doctor, yeah. sergeants. I mean, someone trained. Um, <laughs> yeah. So basic questions like that to have to come up with that, um, you know, have this core group of, of, of folks, almost like a task force to, um, come up with the technology even um do we use zoom do we use microsoft teams do um we went with webex in the assembly because it was like military grade video conferencing right. that the pentagon uses we wanted something secure we didn't want the zoom bomb you know right. uh things going on uh hacking and um and you use plexiglass in the rooms i mean my colleague and i uh actually the when we were coming up with the six foot uh, distancing throughout uh, the assembly, our chief sergeant said, you know, I'll go to Home Depot and get a few PVC pipes that are six feet long. And we use those as measuring sticks so we can deploy us throughout the rooms. And we were there just measuring all those six feet of distance, really? ordering the microphone covers, you know, working closely with our rules committee on, you know, all the health and safety protocols and our legislative council on the legal questions. And um, it was just a lot to put together and we were essentially given, oh, given a time frame. basically we need to have budget hearings within a few weeks right? and to go from no playbook to just inventing it um, literally overnight was not easy, uh, but we did it. Everyone, well, everyone else was kind of holed up at home. We spent three weeks and the legislature, as you know, went into uh, uh, recess for a few weeks so we could figure it out. Both houses were going through the same issues and, um, you know, the, the whole phone system, all of that. And then on the assembly side, we, um, you know, I give kudos to our chief information officer, Saurabh Mansourian. He, because uh, he helped um, push this, was remote testimony stations. Um, no other state did that. Um, and that's where we had, we deployed cameras um, outside the Capitol first, and then we deployed them to other cities mm-hmm. so that a member of the public wouldn't have to come into a, a public building during a, during a health crisis and give their testimony on bills. And we had high quality video feeds in LA, Fresno, um, San Francisco. And um, I think, um, you know, that was something, you know, that good that the assembly did during that time. And we were looking at what other, other states were doing. Some states, one state, they met at a drive, 
drive-in movie theater. Right. Uh, members drove in with their cars to uh, to vote on bills, um, so they wouldn't have to be around other other people in a building. Um, we uh, try to get it as innovative as possible and to be as accessible as possible, uh, but you know to not ban the public from coming into the building. Uh, we definitely try to keep crowds to a minimum by deploying those technologies of phones and video conferencing, right. RTS, all that. So, yeah, it's it's interesting because uh, you know a lot of you know we're California, we're this you know place of high tech, uh, you know all the companies and things like that. Yeah, a lot of our systems are <laughs> not that uh, high tech, and like a lot of committees still use like fax machines because they can't scan you or email you something. <laughs> so, I imagine that had to be quite a transition, like kind of updating the systems and things like yeah. that. Over there. Well, I can tell you the past six years, there has been a huge transformation in technology for the assembly floor in particular. So, those member tablets, they have an app called the Member Portfolio app. When members are on the floor or wherever they are at in the state, they can pull up what's on the agenda, uh, which bills are, do we plan to take up? So if there's 100 bills on file, but we only plan on taking up 25. They can select those and those 25 will show up there. They can, um, you know, uh, over the past five or six years, that's when we deployed the the letter portal. So whether you're a lobbyist or right. a member of the public or organization, you upload your letters and support our opposition of legislation. Uh, so all those are available to the members, uh, which they, they love, you know, instead of just seeing the list of like, okay, these organizations oppose, right. they can actually click, okay, ACLU, why do you oppose? Oh, okay. And actually read the letter and understand the point of view versus just seeing an organization um, uh, listed. And um, to have that technology, available to members, I think, is just a game changer. And they get notes from their staff on there, vote recommendations, um, and they can see all the committee votes, all at their fingertips. You know, just a few years ago, I mean, it was just the, all those floor right. binders paper and everywhere. paper everywhere. Um, you know, a lot of members don't use binders anyway. Their binder is their is their tablet. It has everything they need. Right. So, like, a, a big thing during that time period, maybe still now, is, is remote voting kind of. Where'd you guys end up on remote voting and kind of, you know, you see that being something in the future? Yeah, there was, uh, you know, obviously legal experts um, uh, were consulted and I think the two houses came to different conclusions and the assembly just did did not go with remote voting. I mean, we did pass a provision for proxy voting um, mm -hmm. near the uh, end of session in 2020, um, but yeah, we did not deploy remote yeah, voting. It's funny because, like in the Senate, it's a verbal vote, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so in theory, you could just be on like the phone and verbally vote, but yeah, the assembly actually had to like push the buttons. So yeah, yeah. Well, and funny. they had that, yeah, that unfortunate. I think their last week of session that year, when the entire Republican caucus were exposed. So oh that yeah. Was very unfortunate for yeah. their house. No, they've so. had a lot of excitement over there with the menstrual cup and then the yeah the COVID caucus and yeah that was a. Uh, very interesting year. I think we've seen some some uh, very interesting things over the past couple of years. Yeah, no, kind of like on the assembly side. Uh, Thirty-one years you've been there. Kind of, what are some of the most memorable things that you remember happening on the the assembly floor that you're just kind of like, wow, that was like crazy day at work today. Um, you know, I talked earlier about how I, um, you know, that that first couple months on the job, just being part of that that budget situation also part of that first month like 
former President Reagan spoke on the floor, like 15 mm -hmm. feet away from me. I was like, wow, I, you know, like these famous people that are here. We got the Dalai Lama. Right. We've had, you know, uh, Vice President Al Gore. You know, to, to see and meet a lot of these like people you only see on TV right. or have read about. Um, but like some of the um, interesting stories, of course, many I cannot share. But I remember like wacky things like, you know, where a staffer once thought it would be a good idea to bring a baby goat onto the assembly floor. And I say it didn't end well for the carpet. Um, <laughs> or, uh, you know, you talk about smoking on the assembly floor. I remember staff when I first started there. These are staff that had been here since like almost the 1950s. So, you know, they had a trick. They would uh, keep a burning cigarette in their ashtray if they're going to take a long lunch to make it look like they just stepped away. Really? It's like, really? Um, yeah. So it was a bygone era, but, um, <laughs> but you know, we saw, um, some, some interesting things, um, altercations with members, um, uh, you know, when, uh, those kind of he heated debates go on, of course, the most epic, um, uh, and controversial kind of thing I've ever, you know, witnessed on the assembly floor was the evenly, uh, split. Uh, vote for a speaker in December of 1994. He had 40 uh, Republicans voting for Jim Brulte as speaker and uh, 39 Democrats and one independent voting for Willie Brown as speaker. So 40-40 split. And then we didn't have a speaker for a month and a half. And for the first time in California history, and only time. Um, and just the chaos around that. Um, and the emotions and the speeches and the, um, yeah, you know, lacking we couldn't get a quorum for a month uh, it was it was crazy times so uh and so what, what ended up happening one of the republicans eventually went over to to willie's side is that what happened yeah so in that instance 41 registered republicans won um the november 1994 elections mm -hmm. however one of those republicans dick mountjoy um was in this interesting situation where he was running in a special election that was consolidated with the general election for a Senate seat. So he appeared on the ballot because he had no opponent. He, he appeared on the ballot for the assembly and the Senate, and he got elected to both. He was the only candidate running in each one. His intention was just to go to the Senate. The, the, the assembly race was, right. uh, was not in his, in his picture, but when they, when the Republicans picked up eight seats in one year, um, of course, his focus became, okay, I'm going to get sworn in to the assembly, vote for speaker, Jim Brulte at the time, and then resign and go over to the Senate and take the oath there. Well, the longtime Democratic majority under Willie Brown said, no, 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 no. You didn't intend to run for that seat and you cannot be elected to two incompatible offices. They had legal opinions, law professors, and right. all sorts of arguments on both sides about, you know, what's your legal right to be seated in the assembly? And, you know, I wrote a whole section of it in California legislature, um, the book, you should read it sometime, but it, it goes into the nuance of all this. But uh, bottom line is between election day and swearing in day, Paul Horcher, who was a Republican from Diamond Bar at the time, um, he had been treated well under uh, Democratic Speaker Willie Brown. Um, he was given the vice chair of Ways and Means Committee and um, over the objections of his own caucus. And so when it came time for that you know, uh, vote. He switched parties to independent from Republican to independent. And then he voted when he cast his vote for Willie Brown. Um, he slammed his fist on the table and, and shouted Brown when they called his name uh, for the vote. And that created the deadlock of 4040. 
which, you know, uh, it was like, you know, deflating the air out of the bloom for, you know, the Republican Party, which was ready to take over um, with their 41 votes. So then that started the cycle. First of all, he had to, uh, the House decided to, um, a month and a half later, um, disqualify Mr. Mountjoy from his assembly seat, creating a vacancy, which then created a 40 to 39 vote um, for Speaker Willie Brown, which extended his speakership till June of 1995. So he got six months with speakership to kind of settle things, come up with a, kind of a bipartisan power sharing agreement. Um, then we had four speakers in 12 months. So it went Willie Brown, Doris Allen, Brian Sentensich, and then Kurt Pringle. Right. Uh, basically, there was a series of uh, recall elections um, that took place that uh, eventually led to uh, where the Republicans had a solid majority finally in January of 1996, elected Kurt Pringle as speaker, and he served um, 11 months as speaker, and then Democrats retook the House. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, but, the, but the parliamentary, uh, yeah, um, uh, fireworks that day went on for many hours. And like I said, that was a time when the titans of parliamentary procedure were all still around. John Burton versus Ross Johnson and, you know, Jan Goldsmith and, um, you know, uh, all those folks, uh, you know, Brulte, Pringle, um, all those folks, Tom Hannigan. Right. Yeah. yeah kind of, as you said, now it's kind of different. You know, you have, you know, two thirds majority. Uh, it seems like members are kind of the same page, but kind of. What kind of parliamentary tricks are you are you seeing now? And are members coming to you asking you for advice and and kind of things can do? I like the last member I really remember using the rules regularly was was uh, um, Calderon, Tom uh, um, Chuck Calderon. He would always be up there, you know, mentioning this rule or that rule. You don't see as much of that anymore, other than the kind of Republican objecting at the end of session to yeah. a certain amendment or things like that. Yeah, it, it's often now where it's. Um, I seem to, it seems more personality driven. Mm. Like if someone has it in their personality to, uh, to kind of create a ruckus, right. then they're going to create a ruckus. Um, so, and there's been, I'd say less of that, um, whether that's good or bad for the institution is for someone else to decide. But just as an observer, um, there, there's a lot more order now than there was, like I mentioned in the nineties or mm. even, you know, even 10 years ago. Um, but I mean, there members, most members do not have the time to sit and study parliamentary procedure. Um, same with staff. So they hire folks like me right. to hopefully, you know, help do that for them. But because um, it does take effort and, and, and studying, you know, as they're focusing on public policy, they're focusing on the politics of situations, their constituents. And um, so uh, to get up to the speed of where you can create issues is, is hard. Plus if, if the result is always going to be the same, then why keep doing it? Uh, and you may recall a few years ago, we had a couple of, uh, uh, Republican members that would raise points of order quite often. Um, and then, uh, they weren't reelected. Um, and I think things have kind of simmered down since then. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Um, I'm ready when, <laughs> when, when things <laughs> Ever are since two, eight, 2018, there's haven't been much ruckus on the floor. <laughs> Cause it is exciting to watch. I have to admit, but you know, I think, um, the, the public and members get a, a distaste for it after right. a while. It's like, it gets a little you, annoying, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah really, you know, yeah. it can be exciting to watch sometimes, you know, in retrospect, but, um, you know, ultimately they're there to debate 
uh, respectfully have their disagreements and, and then, you know, vote up or down and sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Yeah. Kind of, you were like t- telling a story earlier, but actually you had to like physically deliver, deliver a bill, mm-hmm. uh, to the governor's office, but take it back to the assembly. Is that still how it works or is it yeah. all digital now? Yeah, that's still, um, when a bill passes both houses it's printed on the white paper, the enrolled mm-hmm. version, and then they, they take the, you know, that bill to the secretary of the Senate and the right. chief clerk, they sign it. I used to have signed those bills as, you know, when, you know, sometimes there's hundreds of bills. I would say here, sign, you know, 50 of these, you know, and I'd be, <laughs> yeah, I would right. be stamped as you know, oh. acting chief clerk. So, and then, so he, he'd dole those out. Um, and, and then, yeah, we'd go down to the governor's office and the governor's um, secretary would sign for them. And that's the one that he uses to, uh, you know, enact the bill um, or veto it. And yeah, I remember that time in 1990 when getting that bill back. I remember Pete Wilson out on his, uh, in the governor's, you know, the horseshoe area mm-hmm. patio there. You know, like I said, it was midnight. So, you know, staff are out there just drinking a glass of wine. And, you know, I'm, I'm just there, as I said, this right. 20 year old kid, you know, and they give me the, um, the bill back. Karen Morgan, who was the uh, governor's legislative secretary. Give me the bill back and uh, yeah, it's, it's still paper. Um, and that paper gets filed with the, state archives so and the bill files the that engrossing and enrolling unit i was telling you about um, they keep those original bill jackets and every version of the bill it's all stapled in there all marked up and everything as it moves through um, each house so there is actually just like schoolhouse rock Mm -hmm. that bill just moving along moves along of course everyone's looking at it electronically as they're working on it but the physical bill is actually being guarded and moved along they're locked away in file cabinets and what have you and then when they uh um bill becomes law or vetoed or just dies on file or in committee all those at the end of each two-year session are boxed up in archive boxes and shipped over to the state archives so there's a permanent record of it over there so they've got boxes and boxes like uh like Raiders of the Lost Ark, right. <laughs> final scene of uh, legislation going back to 1850 over there. That's interesting. There's like this story from like when when Pete Wilson was governor about how he wanted to send a bill back without his signature, but the guy who was in charge of bringing the bill back got distracted or something like that and forgot to do it or left it on a copier or something like that. And so then the bill became law. Yeah, there was, I think, six, uh, six or nine. Yeah, there was a handful of bills, yeah. Yeah, they got sidetracked and uh, became law without the governor's signature because, yeah, they have to be, you know, physically presented back to the chamber where they originated and signed for. Gotta When's the last time you remember something like that happening? Well, that was the only time that's yeah. happened that I know of. And yeah, then, so it was like, the 1990s. Okay. So has it happened again? <laughs> no. no. But, you know, uh, here we are in the Senator Hotel here. This place has a, a lot of history. Um, um, Samish Alley was, I think, on the third or fourth floor. The entire floor was Artie Samish's yeah. uh, suites. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, among other things. And he got his start in engrossing and enrolling um, in the assembly in the 1910s. Um, then became, of course, the most mm. uh, powerful and corrupt lobbyist in California history. <laughs> uh, but, you know, when you read his memoirs, right. he talks about how, you know, he learned you know, where bills went right. and um, and how you could, you know, maybe get something changed in a bill. You, you know, he had, you know, some interesting people on his payroll. He eventually went to federal prison. But, um, you know, and that's, you know, when I worked in E&E, they had the gates there in the basement to uh, prevent the public from going back there. And we were, well, I was, I remember being told on my day one, like never let a lobbyist back here, never let a staffer back here. No one, it's only 
the ENI staff because that's what goes to the governor and you strike a word, that's that's right. what the law will be. Right. Um, so uh, one word yeah. can mean a lot. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. That's interesting. You know, you always hear about this, like at the end of session, like the Senate will be waiting for bills to come back or the assembly will be waiting for bills to come back. So are you literally just like waiting for like the Senate to give you just like a stack of bills yeah. and you actually physically have to, none of this is digital. This is all like actually physically waiting for. Yeah. For yeah. Bills. So, I mean, I'm sitting at my desk there in the assembly chamber sometimes, especially when you're up against a constitutional deadline where you have to get bills right. you know, before midnight. And if we've seen a bill that's passed the Senate floor, you know, I was like, where is it? You know, it's 30 minutes ago. How long does it take to walk over? You know, right. and they're doing the same. That's right. And sometimes, you know, we're holding just to wait, you know, um, so that we can ensure there's a, um, an equal flow of legislation. If someone feels like their bill is being held up, you know, we don't want to get into those games. Um, so, you know, we're looking at the door or we see a Senate sergeant walk in and we're like, oh, that, is that the bill? Is that the bill we're looking for? And uh, so, yeah, it's the physical. So the sergeants bring them back and forth or? On the Senate side, the Senate sergeants usually will bring them over to our side. Um, in our house, I think our clerks uh, will deliver them over there um, to the Senate. Artie Samish in his uh, memoirs um, you know, admitted um, that I think it was the 1935 session. Um, he killed a bill on oil extraction tax um, by delaying its delivery to the Senate because he had a friend right. just wait till after midnight. Um, and uh, again, you know, you know, we don't have that anymore in California. Right. Uh, thank goodness. But it's like one of those uh, when people are wondering, like, why are things so stringent? Why are things, you know, kept under you know, lock and key? Why are why is everything signed for? Um, it's because of the, the, the bad old days. Right. Yeah. That's funny. Kind of, you know. That was then. This is now kind of something similar, right? We have a special session here on on oil. Kind of, what's your role in the special session? And kind of, can you give us a little background? A lot of people don't know what a special session is. You know, what are the rules for it? Things like that. Right. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. So we organized the first extraordinary session of the 2023-24 um, session uh, a few days ago, and um, a special session is exactly what it sounds like. Uh, well, you can call it special or extraordinary. Both those terms are used. Um, in the rules and in our constitution, but uh, the governor has a sole authority to call a special session of the legislature, and he um, he or she gets to determine what the topics are. And um, so we organize uh, each house organizes on the day that he um, calls for, and we generally, and this is uh, gone through thirty six of these um, uh, special sessions. We just organize the house, which is just you know, uh, substituting the officers from the regular session, just pretty much substituting all the rules and everything, right. except in a special session, several rules don't apply. 30 day rule, the um, uh, file notices that you'll have different committees often in the special session, um, the legislative deadlines like committee hearings and things like that um, are often different. Now, each house can choose to create, you know, special rules for a special session, but generally, Historically, um, a lot of the rules don't apply. Now, can't get around certain things. 72-hour rule applies to special session bills. The three readings on three separate days applies to special session bills as well. So, but uh, but there's leeway the, under the Constitution. Um, each house has the authority to govern its internal affairs and adopt its own rules. So um, on our first day of session, all we did was organize the house um, 
and you know we haven't adopted rules per se for extraordinary session mm-hmm. uh, when rules aren't adopted by the way you just go to the most recently adopted rules and use that as precedent so as of right now that's what we're doing so basically all the special session is just give you a little more flexibility to do something a little faster yeah. maybe yeah so it gives you the fle- flexibility of acting uh, more quickly on legis- legislation also um, special session bills um, take effect 91 days after the two houses adjourn, signy die, the special mm-hmm. session. So the two houses determine when they will adjourn a uh, special session, and that will start that 91-day window okay. uh, ticking. Um, so even like a you know majority vote bill would take effect 91 days. It doesn't have to wait till January of next right. year. And so and it helps fast It's track. basically a way kind of do an urgency bill without two-thirds vote. Yeah, I mean, it's still not quite urgency, right. but 90 days instead of immediately or, you know, instead of the, you know, the next year. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you just had Monday, you just had your, your swearing in kind of what's the, the schedule for the, the rest of the year for you? Uh, well, um, we're in organizational recess right now. Mm-hmm. So what that means is uh, we did our swearing in, right. organized the house, and now we're, you know, members can go back, um, you get staffed up you know get ready for session but they also we kept the desk open in our house for two weeks to allow members to cross bills and they've been crossing bills each day um so i think they have until friday the 16th to cross bills so even though we're not officially in session having check-in sessions and floor Mm -hmm. sessions members are introducing bills get that 30-day window ticking um and then we come back in january um uh, that wednesday the first wednesday in january this year and we'll hit the ground running uh and of course, the beginning of a two-year session, pretty tame in terms of volume. Usually the, the things we look for in early January, governor's budget being presented. Right. We'll have some floor ceremonies. Um, and uh, But the bills, you know, they still have to go through committees. They have their 30-day 30 30 day waiting period. And the Ledge Council deadline to submit bill language is usually around the third week of January. So a lot of bills aren't even eligible to be heard in committee until February or March, uh, usually March. Um, and, and so kind of, you know, kind of the desk is open and, and I mm-hmm. just saw Tina McKinner tweet this. She got AB one. Mm-hmm. What, how do you get AB one? And uh, what is there a, be a fast. fight? Is there a fight for AB one? Is it literally just like, you know, staff sleep at the desk, get the, the bill across first. Like, there's got to be a scramble to get AB1. You, yeah, you've just got to be first in line. So she was on her toes. She was, so, she was there before yeah, everyone yeah. else. Yeah. And you'll have members that say, you know, hey, I'm uh, assembly member from District 62. I'd like a, AB62 mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever the number is. Uh, multiple times in the past, um, we've had members want to ban AB666 that it was, you know, you know. No. Right, mark the, mark, the beast. Right. So, uh, someone actually proposed a rule once in the 1990s to do away with that bill number. But um, yeah, bill numbers can be important for uh, you know for members, and uh, you know one is an important be, number. Can be <laughs> can easy be. to remember. Yeah. So, like, if you like, yeah, if you wanted, you know, AB 62, can you request that, or you just have to like time it? You or? can request it, but um, you can't. Um, it can't be reserved per se. Right. So. Um, so it's all about timing and, you know, how many bills are coming into the desk each day and, you know, back to the, the paperwork thing, it's still, you know, uh, there's still some of that old school, you know, stamping bills and, um, um, and, but, you know, I think 
as members are tweeting out pictures of them putting uh, their legislation across the desk, um, there's a certain feels better than emailing something, right. doesn't it? So you're actually physically doing right. something. This is a great idea. Something moves across, across the desk when I say yeah. Yeah, and uh, so some of that tradition I think is important. Yeah. So you know, this year we kind of have something interesting. We have you know a couple elections that are are still not decided. Um, so as of you know Monday swearing in day, uh, you know were members sworn in or they're just like holding the seats, just waiting, you know, for these last couple elections to be cited. I think like a couple of them are like by 12 votes or yeah, <laughs> it's crazy amazing. Right I think Alex Fauser tweeted out that, yeah, yeah uh, these two elections that are pending one in the Senate, one in the uh, assembly are the closest in California history. Mm-hmm. Talking about every few days, it goes up 10 or 20 right. votes one way or the other. Um, so, um, and, you know, the Constitution gives, you know, each house the authority to govern its internal affairs and to determine the qualifications of its members. So in a situation like this, I mean, 1980, we seated a member, Adrian Fonzi, and then a few weeks later, the election results flipped and he, you know, he was replaced by Patrick Johnson. Um, so um, sometimes it's good to just wait that out and let the uh, right. something this close to uh, wait it out so you're not having this awkward thing where you you know you swear on someone and then have to switch a few days later just let the um let the results get certified and then use that to uh, seat the member nice so you know you, desk is open till the 16th and then kind of when do you guys start up again getting ready for uh, next year so january 4th you guys have your calendar ready <laughs> Yeah, the legislative <laughs> calendar is out there. It's on the legislative uh, website. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll be in session at 1 p.m. on January 4th um, in the assembly. I'm not sure what time the Senate's going in, but, um, and yeah, we will hit the ground running. Um, the constitutional officers, I think, all get sworn in that week as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, governor and everyone will be having, I'm sure, inaugural events and swearing in ceremonies uh, the first part of January. And, and uh, those assembly floor sessions will also kick in. Right. Awesome. Well, Brian, thanks so much for joining us and kind of give us a little sense and a little history. Very interesting stuff. Uh, definitely learned a lot and uh, looking forward to seeing you uh, next year. And uh, may you have an interesting year and more interesting times coming ahead. Thank so. you. I just try to keep uh, people awake when I'm talking. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Great. Thanks a lot, Brian. Thank you.